Welcome to Dead Pilot Society, the show that takes comedy pilots from A-list writers that were sold and developed at networks but never produced and gives them the table reads they never got a chance to have. I'm Andrew Reich, the creator and host of Dead Pilot Society. I hope everyone's having a nice holiday season, um, that uh, everyone's got some good plans for, you know, for Christmas, some New Year's plans that uh, won't end up being hugely disappointing. Um, it's, uh, it's the happiest time of the, the, the year. Okay, this is the after show for Big Wishes by Kristen Bartlett. Kristen was a writer for Saturday Night Live before moving over to Full Frontal with Samantha Bee, where she has risen to the position of head writer. And if you think, wow, she must be such a political junkie to have that job. Well, you may be surprised. Uh, listen, and uh, as you'll hear, Kristen's long been interested in finding the comedy in dark subjects like she did in her pilot, Big Wishes. Um, also, she worked in standards and practices, and she was in charge of the three-second delay button. She's got some great stories. Kristen is awesome. I love talking to her. I think you'll enjoy this, too. Here is my interview with the fabulous Kristen Bartlett. Tights and Fights is the perfect wrestling podcast from Maximum Fun. And this week, we're speaking to Austin Creed, better known as WWE's Xavier Woods, to find out more about his favorite TV show growing up. And I would watch Golden Girls, all of the things that I'm obsessed with in my life, all of them have that aspect of teamwork. So Golden Girls is four women right in the house. No, no, their fifth person is their chemistry. That to me is the most important thing because that's what we're all trying to find. WWE and G4's Austin Creed on Tights and Fights. Find it on Maximum Fun or wherever you get your podcasts. Kristen, so good to see you. It's good to see you. What's been going on lately? <laughs> oh, gosh. Just really not much at all. But uh, <laughs> good. I wish I, I wish I had exciting <laughs> things to tell you. That's good. Um, but I just listened. Uh, one exciting thing is I just listened back to the recording of Big Wishes, which was Aww. so much fun. It's oh, my God. Really- I was so jazzed. It was the most exciting thing because I hadn't really read it in so long, you know, like I hadn't read it in a year or almost. I don't think a lot of people when their pilot doesn't go spend a lot of time rereading that pilot just every few weeks. I don't think it happens. You tend to (laughs) never look at them again. Completely. And so like, as it was happening, that was like very nice. Like it was nice to hear it. It was nice to like, see those amazing people doing it. <laughs> so I was very jazzed that whole morning. And I even like wrote down notes for things I would change now that I'd heard it, you know, like, which is crazy, but still it was an no, exciting. You can't help but do that. But the good yeah. thing is no one is giving you other notes that you don't agree with. Exactly. Those were my notes. No one else's. Exactly. Which is good. That's, that's <laughs> We're okay with those notes. So yeah. there's a lot I want to talk about in the, in the pilot, but I'm, cool. I, I want to sort of talk about before we get into that, we haven't had a ton of um, late night, you know, sketch writers, you know, on the podcast and I've never worked in that area. Sure. I know a ton about it. So I'm kind of curious about, you know, how did you get to Saturday night live? What was the path to get to many years of not getting paid? <laughs> sure. I think that's, that's the road. I so- that. <laughs> so yeah, like I started doing classes at Upright Citizens Brigade in 2010, maybe 2009, 2010. Um, and I started with sketch. I took a class, my sketch 101 teacher was Adam Conover. 
Okay. The beautiful thing about UCB is that like basically everyone you learn from or at that time, RIP to UCB in general. But um, at that time, like eventually these people that teach you how to A to C are going to go on to be like success stories of their own. So yeah, like he was our sketch uh, 101 teacher and I always wanted to write basically like that sort of like kind of, and is this making noise? I think this is making noise. Let me move this around. I'm going to futz with things. That's the problem. I'm always, if Jason and I do a podcast together, I'm always like tapping or <laughs> like I'm doing like some sort of weird thing. And he's like, stop. And he's a sound, um, he's a sound guy. So it's gotta be. Yes. Tough. My husband is a sound guy. And therefore like he tries to make me aware of my own flailing and I can't help it anyway. Uh, yeah. So, um, so we, and, before you got to UCB, I mean, had you yeah. like in college, had, had you done oh my God. improv? I, had you done any of that writing, anything? Like I that? went to a Baptist college, so there was, okay. <laughs> there was no improv. I'm from North Carolina. Um, I really had no connections in the world of comedy or writing, but I was always like that funny kid. Um, I did, theater and I was always like as like the fat kid I was always like the choir like number 10 (laughs) like deep in there they would hide me um and so I learned that in order to be successful there I had to write a little bit and I already was writing I did Odyssey of the Mind in high school if you're familiar with that I'm not familiar with that (laughs) it is a thing where well there are two sides of Odyssey of the Mind one is to write a sketch essentially and you perform the sketch and it is supposed to solve a problem so it's like this like marriage of comedy and like science and that was like the one way that I could be creative and I would write like little short plays with that and my team actually in middle school won the world finals championships. That was the first, Whoa. yeah, that was the first sketch I ever wrote or not really ever, ever, but that was the first like taste of sketch, you know? Um, and I was a fan of SNL. Like that was a dream. Um, I like grew up with like Will Ferrell and Molly Shannon and sort of like idolizing them. Uh, but I didn't really know how to get there. And so I majored in journalism because I thought that was like the way to be a writer uh, in a safe way, which turns out <laughs> the opposite is true. <laughs> like it turns out that I have a much more stable career path as a comedy writer than if I had been a journalist. Which is just such a sad statement. Sad state of the world. True. Um, but yeah, I started at UNC and then ended up, ended up transferring to this Baptist college to Wingate University because they offered me like a great deal. Like they offered me a great scholarship. And it was this tiny little school, but they, did, they definitely didn't have comedy writing classes or improv. That was not the world, but I was on the newspaper and I sort of convinced one of the professors to do a one-on-one class with me on screenwriting. So I could slightly dip my toe in. And then I did an internship with the television Academy and they placed me in drama development at CBS. So again, it was always like, I want to write, but I'm going to go to the thing that I <laughs> I know that it's like real. It's like stable in my mind. Yeah. And yeah. Ooh, hang on. I got a little alert from Dropbox. Okay, we're good. Um, yeah. So I, I interned for Nina Tassler at CBS. Oh, wow. Okay. It was incredible. Um, and Laverne McKinnon and Christina Davis. And I think that that was my experience of like seeing what the pitch process is like. I got to sit in on the pitch season for the drama shows that summer. Um, But again, it was like this like far away thing. Um, And I went back 
home, graduated from college. And the first job that I could take, could find it in the entertainment business was in standards and practices. So <laughs> I had a career for many years in S and P like I so, started. So for listeners who don't know, I mean, it's yeah. kind of the censors of it television. Is. It's the people that say, no, you, you, you can't say that, or we'll give yeah. you one dick, but you got to cut one of the balls. 100%. Like yeah. you have meetings about like how, like much of a fart you can hear. Like, it's like this fart is too wet. This fart is okay. Like that's the whole job. <laughs> and you were at CBS still or where? At that time I was um, at uh, TBS. So standards um, and practices at TBS. Okay. Yeah. So I was in North Carolina. My first, like, the first job was in Atlanta. So that was like a doable move. Like I could envision myself living that's a plane. I could envision myself living four hours away. Like <laughs> that was a doable thing to do. Um, and I was an assistant in that in their standard practices department. Um, a young little know-it-all. <laughs> and so they promoted me a year later into an editor role working on Super Deluxe and adultum.com. And that was the first iteration of Super Deluxe. I don't know how familiar you are with it at all. Not really. So I don't know. It was like early days. I feel like it was pre funny or die. Like it was really, really early days for internet comedy and TBS created this website for comedy called super deluxe. And they ended up paying a lot of New York comedians, good money to make content. People like Chelsea Peretti, Adam Conover and his sketch team, old English had like a series on that website. And so it introduced me to a lot of these people. And yeah, <laughs> so I was there for three years and just working the business side, wanting to write, but not really knowing how to do that. And then I, I learned about UCB. My husband was like really, really into it. I didn't know about it at all. And we started thinking about like making a move to New York or to LA. And I started to applying, I started applying to jobs. We were having a hard time in Atlanta because my husband couldn't find work. He was working a series of like weird day jobs. Like he worked for the bodies exhibit. <laughs> and so it was just like this, like he wanted to be doing something else. I wanted to be doing something else. And so we made this move. I got this job um, doing S&P again at CBS. Um, this time I did a lot of like the button work where you press the button when someone says something in a live event. <laughs> And at the same time, uh, started taking classes at UCB. Wait, can and we talk about yes. that? I was just, yeah. We can't just leave the I'm sorry. Button, button work there. So, okay. So know, this is like a award, lifetime. award shows and things like that. Yeah. I think CBS got much more serious about it after the 2004 Super Bowl with Janet Jackson. And so they do a button for almost any live event they do. So that means that if someone curses, like you drop audio on a delay. And if someone does something on screen, that is a problem. You cut to a God shot. So it cuts to the audience just like, <laughs> yeah. And they have people um, who are in charge of watching that show 10 seconds or seven to 10 seconds earlier than everyone else does. And they press the button <laughs> and that was me. Can you uh, tell us some of your greatest button pushes? My greatest, probably Mike Nichols, um, and maybe at the Tonys, I think he said the word goddamn. And, <laughs> and it's an interesting thing. Like Turner at this time, at least this was at CBS that, that I did this, but I remember getting this training at Turner, um, the country at that point in time, Bush was president. 
<laughs> whatever, um, took religious profanity much more seriously than some of the other words. And so Jesus Christ, which I think is a word that is like very pervasive now, was like seen as very offensive then. And it wasn't that long ago. Yeah, I don't um, even know. Can you say, say can you say goddamn even now on network TV? I think you can. Can you? Okay. you can, but it's TV 14 L <laughs> that's the dumb like knowledge that I walk around with. Like, Oh, that's rated this that's rated this, which, yeah, I don't know, <laughs> but, but, but the American public took religious profanity more seriously. And so that is one of the ones that I believed out this revered hero of our industry. <laughs> I edited his language when he was accepting an award. Um, yeah. Or like, like a song that you would always have to be really like on it for a song. If something's going to go by really quickly. So it's a combination um, of really knowing the rules and having fast reflexes. Reflexes is all that it is <laughs> like, and you, the timing has to be exactly right. Cause you can be a little too fast. I think you'll probably notice this sometimes in award shows where someone it's like designed for human error. And if you're like really on it, then you could, you could bleep the word before the curse. word. <laughs> anyway, Listen, it's a science sure. <laughs> and it gave me health insurance <laughs> and, and, and my rent. It paid my rent. We were living in Jersey City and it like also paid for UCB classes, which were not cheap. Um, <laughs> they weren't and they were cheaper at the time. But yeah, I think like what really propelled this when I made this big shift was when my dad died. So my dad died in January of 2010. Um, very unexpectedly. And it was just four months after my husband had lost his dad and we had been living our lives and doing okay. And having like jobs next door to the thing that we wanted to do. And then when we lost our parents, we went on a grief for a grief journey um, and came out of it finally saying we have to do the things that we've been afraid to do. Like, let's actually take a chance. Let's actually take this seriously. It, we're not getting any younger. And it's, you know, I, I knew that our parents, our fathers had other dreams, you know, like I had seen this happen with my dad. Jason had seen it happen with his and like, why, <laughs> why not? You know? And so we got serious and started taking these classes and I agreed to take a sketch class. <laughs> Jason really wanted to take improv, which was like the most horrifying thing. Um, I was so scared. I would leave my improv class every week and think, I'm never going back. <laughs> <laughs> I hated it so much. But then I started to love it. And then you're in the cult. Like you're basically in it. You're sucked in. And I did that for years while working at CBS and moved up the ranks at UCB. So they have these house sketch teams. And one of the things that kept happening is that I wouldn't get on there. They have these teams called mod teams and that's their house sketch team that performed every week. Um, and I wanted it so badly, <laughs> you know, like when you're like a student, it's like, Oh wow. Like these people are doing the thing that I love. And it's like, the, it's the step to get in. And I kept submitting every year and not getting placed on a team I think I did like five or six packets, like so many packets and didn't get on. And so in that process, it was like the lesson that, that I think I learned over and over again in life, which is like, fuck you, I'll do my own thing. <laughs> and so I formed my own sketch team with my husband. We had this team called Bridge and Tunnel. We performed because we lived in Jersey. Um, we, we performed every month at the pit in the city. And then 
funneled a lot of like my sketch energy after several years into a show called the dead dads club. And so that show was five years after we had lost our dads. It was finally time that we could process it in a comedic way. Not easy. Um, but I, we, we've sort of funneled all of the moments that were funny about that experience. And there are so many, I think in grief, yeah. <laughs> what do you think? What is your, yeah, I feel like I'm talking. <laughs> no, no, no. You're here to, you're here to talk. I lost, you know, <laughs> uh, yeah, I lost my dad very young you know, as well. And so, mm-hmm. but yes, there's always funny moments. Yeah. You, know, you cling it, to it. Yes. Yeah. And those laughs are always huge because you need them more than you need it. Ever. It's relief. It's relief. Yeah. Yeah. And we had so many of those, like one of them was Jason's dad died the day before his birthday. And we had to drive home to, to his home in Virginia to like do the work of planning the funeral and figuring out how to cremate a body and all of that stuff, like all of the work, you know, I, we were, I mean, Jason's in his early thirties. I was in my twenties. Like I didn't know what to do, but we, it was up you to us. Were, you, knew, you knew there were people that do that for you, though. You didn't think you had to create, you didn't think you had to create. <laughs> I didn't think cells. it would be me. I didn't <laughs> okay. think it would be me. All right, good. But I, but you also have to find those people. Like yeah. I, like on that drive home, I was on Yelp. Like, <laughs> like that was what I did. I was like, okay, well, who's the best funeral director in Radford, Virginia? <laughs> and and like that's how I did it because it's a town you know he hadn't lived there for a million years and you know I had never been there so like you have to learn how to do all of these things and so we were in town and and doing that work and had just absolutely the most draining day of horror (laughs) like just just absolute horror um and then we went to a Mexican restaurant to just drown ourselves in queso. And it was the day before Jason's birthday. He had met up with a couple of his friends who helped like do some of the work of cleaning out the house. And uh, they like there was a mariachi band that overheard us talking about Jason's birthday. And they came over and serenaded us with like the happiest birthdays, <laughs> you know? And we were just like sitting there staring at each other like this is the worst, best thing that could happen in this awful moment. And there were so many, I mean, there just are, like, I think you cling to those moments of relief um, okay, during so a complete loss. So yeah. your interest in finding the comedy in death, which is what this yes. pilot is, is already present in these very early stages of your career. So the dead dads club. It's baked is, in. Yeah. It was what exactly? I mean, was that just a name of a new, like, group you put together or that was a show? That It was you... a show. Okay. So it was a sketch and storytelling show. And uh, it was real stories tied into sketches that were heightened versions of what really happened. Um, both in the experience of Jason losing his dad and then in the experience of me losing mine. What we learned, like how we existed during that time. And it was something that resonated with people. So we got to do it at UCB. We got to take it to LA. We did it in Montreal. Um, I think there was a hunger. There's always a hunger (laughs) for comedy that comes from a real place. And I think it was something that people weren't seeing on stage at that moment in time. That sort of like honest comedy in that moment, it was 2014. Um, So people liked it. And that got me like my first meetings and my first, like I had been 
doing packets. So that's how you do like the late night world. You apply so via packets. Little, yeah. Explain a little bit more about what a packet consists of. Every late night show and SNL included has like a system of, of getting writer submissions and they ask for whatever is on their show. So um, for some late night shows, it might be monologue jokes and desk bits, the little like thank you notes on Jimmy Fallon. Um, and for others, it could be sketches. And so part of, I didn't have managers or anything like that, no matter how badly I wanted them. <laughs> but part of like being in such a good community like that is like other people did. And so I had friends who would pass along their packets to me and then I would submit and hope for the best. And I had done quite a few, but SNL was one of them. And that happened in 2016. Okay. So you submitted a packet and they, and they, you know, what's that hiring practice, like, you know, process <laughs> rather like. Yeah. I think it's different every year. Um, that year, Chris Kelly and Sarah Schneider were their the head writers. Um, and the writers on that show and they did like I said, the packet um, consists of several sketches and you just sort of submit your best stuff. And a lot of people write new things, but I had things from UCB that I just like retooled to make SNL friendly. And every year people submit in July. And I think I got the call sometime mid August um, to come in for an interview. And I was en route to an ultrasound. <laughs> I had, I had a, like, this is the weirdest thing. I had, um, a uterine cyst. Hello, America. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> and I was en route to have that like sonogram, like that experience, like having that checked out. And I got the call from, um, one of the assistants who actually works for my show now, um, as a producer, Laura Volk, she was like, Hey, like, um, Chris and Sarah liked your packet. We'd love for you to come in and, and talk to us. And I, that was like, holy shit. <laughs> like, like the culmination of like so much, like, holy crap. Like someone knows who I am. Someone liked my writing. This, this like amazingly storied thing that I dream of. Like when I worked at CBS and Sarah practices, sometimes I would take my lunch, like, of, like down the street at 30 rock downstairs, like, because I dreamed of it so much, you know, like, like I would do like my little morning pages, which were never done in the morning. <laughs> so like the culmination of that happening, was just this incredible moment of excitement. And then I had the funniest ultrasound <laughs> where like, I stared at my like empty uterus with the kind of like excitement that, uh, a new mom feels. <laughs> <laughs> because I knew the interview for SNL was coming. Um, but that's how it was. <laughs> that's like, really, I was just like ear to ear, like just so excited about that the whole time. Like I called in and I interviewed with Chris Kelly, Sarah Schneider and Brian Tucker, who were the head writers at the time. And um, yeah, like I knew Chris because he was my sketch to a one teacher. So again, it's something of like, oh, eventually these people are going to be massive stars. Um, so he knew me years before when I was really just learning how to do it. Um, so I appreciate the faith, the leap of faith he took, <laughs> you know, on being open to someone five years later. Um, but it was an incredible interview and I was just excited to be there. I mean, I was on like 
the floor, like with all the photos of the cast members and stuff, like in that hall, like it's just a pretty profound experience for someone who has always wanted that to be in. Yeah. Yeah. That's gotta be just the greatest thing. So what did you do when you were told they were hiring you? I did not take a second to celebrate. I was like, okay. I remember being on the phone. Um, Kristen Sarah called to tell me that I had it. And, and by the way, it was a week later. And that was like the hardest week of my life. <laughs> like it was like, you find out, you find out like other people who are interviewing you look on Instagram. It's such a funny thing. New York is a small town and the New York comedy community is even smaller. And so you start to hear like rumors like, Oh, XYZ went in or they're talking to this person or they're talking to that person. And, and you compare yourself to people and you're like, Oh God, (laughs) you know, kind of, it's really, really stressful. But a week, a, a week later I heard from them and it just felt like the most natural thing in the world. And I was like, okay, great. When do I start? <laughs> and part of that was like, Oh, I need to give notice at my day job. Um, and at that time I was working for an ad agency doing the same thing, the standards and practice thing for advertising. And they were wonderful and encouraging. And I gave about two days notice. <laughs> so it didn't matter ever, but, but that was the thing. Like I was just ready to get, get going. And you're thrown right into that writer's room. Right? You are. What what they do every year, they gather... Well, it depends. But that year, they gather people uh, basically a month early or a few weeks early. And you write commercial parodies. And the tradition of that is that they would film those before they filmed everything else. Uh, because it took so much longer to film things mm-hmm. instead of doing it live. That is no longer the case. And so now it's more, or at least it was then more of a way to like get people comfortable, get you back in the zone after having the summer off. It really does feel like everyone's back to school and you just meet a couple times a week to kind of get back into it, you know? And so that's what we did. So we wrote commercial parodies and, and it was did also, you know anyone yeah. on that staff from, from UCB or from, you know, from New York to I knew people lightly. So I knew Sashir um, and I had just done a show with her. Uh, she had hosted a show called Night Late at UCB, which was a show that I was writing for run by Lauren Mandel and Eric Cunningham. It's a show where every month they have a different late night host. And so Sashir had come in and hosted that. So I knew her and I knew a few of the other writers like casually. I wasn't like close friends with anyone. And yeah. So I knew people a little bit and obviously knew Chris still, I was scared absolutely shitless as everyone is when they go into that. And it was also the year that he was premiering his movie, other people. And so one of the first things that happened is that we got invited to like a premiere night of that. All of the new writers, all of the writers did, but it, all of the new writers were like seated together and so excited. And I was sitting behind Molly Shannon. So it was like a very big, like full circle. Oh God. <laughs> moment of being in that. And, and you also live with it a few weeks before everyone knows you can't tell anyone. So NBC has to be the one to announce that. So it's like, you're a little secret why you suddenly can't make it to this rehearsal or why like you are, you know, you know, it's just a thing that you walk Smiling around with. all the time. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> why you're happy about that empty uterus. <laughs> Um, and so you, you were there how many years at SNL? Two years. I was there for two years. Um, and I'm so proud of, especially my first year, <laughs> like that was when, when Chris and Sarah were in charge, like 
I'm just so proud of the work that we were all able to do there. I think they were big defenders of us. And it was also very cool to be in that place during the 2016 election. It felt like going zero to 60, like not working in TV professionally to working in this very intense environment where the news was changing every second. To be able to respond to that was incredible. My first sketch that I got on was with Sashir. We did a parody of Stranger Things, like asking where the Black Kids family was. <laughs> so I got to write that. Uh, Lin-Manuel was the host. It's just, it's a very glamorous, you know, it's a very glamorous place to be in, a very exhausting and stressful place as well. But it was fun to be there in that moment. And I think that the show was getting a lot of great attention that year too. Yeah, it's like, like the most relevant show on tv at that point yeah at that moment it was a very cool place to be yeah yeah and okay so two years there and then full frontal was was next full frontal was next yeah so yeah like i wanted to i i wanted to do something i wanted to switch to narrative like that was the goal like i wanted to work with characters that's the stuff that i had the most fun working on before snl and that was the dream after, but I got an email from Melinda Taub, who was the head writer of Full Frontal. See if I wanted to come in and meet with Sam. <laughs> and um, yeah, and so I did. And, and I really liked her a lot. Like she was so normal and so, <laughs> such a great presence of like really good energy. And after coming from a place that was so high stress, like getting to talk to someone on a normal level was just a joy. <laughs> and yeah, and so I jumped at that chance. And I was also very clear with them too. Like one of the things that had made me afraid of that show was that I don't, I, at that time, I didn't walk around with like a never ending knowledge of, <laughs> of politics. You weren't a political junkie. No. Or this at all. Not even slightly. Like my stuff on SNL were all pop culture parodies. Like <laughs> that's what I, and that's what I did. Like, but they wanted a goof. They wanted someone silly and a like a joker in the room. And they had a lot of policy wonks. And so they needed that energy in the room. And by virtue of being there, you become that person eventually anyway, because you're just baking in it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But I started there in 2018. Yep. <laughs> in the spring. And, and, your and, and your position there now. I'm head writer of the show now. Um, I share that with Mike Drucker. We became head writers in January, February, 2020. We learned how to do that job in studio for the month. And then we immediately went home for the pandemic and learned how to do it from home. And we've been there ever since. <laughs> and so, okay. So all, how did you squeeze in writing? I mean, it seems like these are such intense jobs, SNL and, you know, yes. doing a show like Full Frontal, like, how do you write big wishes at that time? Is it during, do you have a hiatus? Like, is, was there a time that you wrote in your off time? Oh God. So, so SNL has hiatuses in the summer. And I think that's when a lot of people do things, um, but it really does take a month or it took a month for me in order to feel like a normal person again. <laughs> so that's like, it would, all, it, it's a challenge, but I think this is something that I have to talk about in therapy literally every week is like, I'm still trained to leave my day job and then go and work my second job. And that's not good. <laughs> <laughs> and I don't advise it, but it's what we're transitioning out of. Like, I feel like I would work at McCann Erickson 
from, you know, I would commute in from Jersey city into the city and I would like be there for my eight hours. And because they felt sorry for me, they would let me take naps in the lactation room because all of everybody else had left work. It was just me alone in that office, but it would take too long for me to commute back to Jersey city and back to New York before I would do whatever show or whatever class or whatever rehearsal that I would sleep in the lactation room <laughs> and then go to a show and go perform and then go home and do it all over again the next day. And so like, I could never do that again, but there's still like touches where as soon as I'm done with the workday, I do feel guilty about switching to the next thing. Um, we'll get there. <laughs> <laughs> but I wrote big wishes when I was a staff writer on Full Frontal, which was a much more, I'm, listen, I'm doing the same thing right now as a head writer, but at the time, like it was like something I could like balance. And I would, the best thing for me is to take class. I take screenwriting classes all the time from um, this guy, Scott Reynolds in the city. Well, he's in Atlanta now, but he was in the city then. He trained a lot of people to write pilots <laughs> in New York, I think. Um, a lot of sketch people learning how to do the thing. And now I know how to do it, but I wrote Big Wishes in like maybe my sixth class because there's nothing better than feeling the guilt of, you know, six people who want you to have turned in your stuff that week. Right. And I've always found that my writers groups tend to be lazy. <laughs> There's something about the exchange of money and someone's time that makes me actually like get my shit together. Um, but again, that's the thing that I'm working on. Did you ever pull into the driveway after a trip to the grocery store just to realize that you forgot that one key ingredient for dinner? Now you have options. You can get the groceries you need or forget that ingredient and all the rest of the ingredients and just order a meal from your favorite local restaurant all delivered with DoorDash. That's right. Along with the restaurants you love, you can now get groceries and other essential items delivered with DoorDash. Get drinks, get snacks, get other household items in under an hour. There's over 300,000 partners so you can support your neighborhood go-tos or you can choose from, you know, you can, get, you can get Popeyes, you know, or maybe get something from your neighborhood go-to. Ordering's easy. Your items will be left safely outside your door when you choose contactless delivery drop-off. This is a new sponsor for us. And for a limited time, our listeners can get 25% off and zero delivery fees on their first order of $15 or more. When you download the DoorDash app and enter code DEADPILOTS, that's 25% off up to a $10 value and zero delivery fees on your first order. When you download the DoorDash app in the App Store and enter code DEADPILOTS, don't forget that's code DEADPILOTS for 25% off your first order with DoorDash. It's subject to change, terms apply, but check this out. This is a great deal. Maximum Fun is a network by and for cool, popular people. But did you know it also has an offering designed to appeal to nerds? A show for nerds? On Maximum Fun? The devil, you say? It's true. It's called The Greatest Generation. And they review episodes of a television program for nerds called Star Trek. They've reviewed TNG, DS9, and are now reviewing Voyager. Hey, Star Trek. My daughter enjoys that program. Well, if she enjoys that, and she enjoys humor of the flatulent variety, might I recommend she subscribe to The Greatest Generation? Hey, are you calling my kid a nerd? Why, I oughta... Well, gotta go! 
Become a friend of DeSoto by subscribing to The Greatest Generation on MaximumFun.org today. Where did the idea come from? I always have my ideas when I'm in a pool. <laughs> so this one came. Um, Chase and I were on vacation. We were in Jamaica at the first and only all-inclusive resort we've ever been to. So it was like the January 2019. Um, and we were swimming, trying to come up. What's my next sample going to be? What's my next idea going to be? And I obviously like talking about grief. Um, so that's natural. But I also think that the Make-A-Wish program... <laughs> is rich with comedy. Um, <laughs> it just is. It makes me laugh. And so I was circling something in that world before landing on this idea. And so it started with the premise. Okay. Yeah. Um, so, all right. So you said when we talked before that you, that it was a, a sort of edgier version. Yes. Now this, I will say, this is, the version yeah. we read um, yeah. didn't feel like a particularly varied network. It's not. Uh, it's not. Yeah, so that's not. Is the version we read the, the 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 your sort of first iteration of this? It's it's a combination of one. It's a combination of the first one with the network draft. So uh, the first one is like rough and raw. Like a lot of things are implied. Like I think like it's you know squirting is in the first draft. <laughs> All of those things were there. And then the network version, a lot of like the work that I did, in addition to making it appropriate for ABC, was really making those relationships very clear and getting people's deals <laughs> very clear on the page. And so there were certain things that I didn't like from that process, but like a lot that I did. And so this draft takes the stuff that I enjoyed from that rewrite process um, and then adds back the edgy stuff that I missed from the first draft. Yeah. Did you have to sub something else out for Hyacinth's threesome wish, or did you just do a toned down version of I that? did a toned down for... No, no, no. I was able to keep the threesome. They let me keep a threesome, okay. but it was like an artfully done... <laughs> that scene for the network draft is that they are having this threesome, but we keep seeing like, she has like multiple glasses of water on her nightstand. And we just keep seeing them like rattle off the, off of the uh, side table. Okay. Um, so <laughs> that was my network way of doing a threesome. They were open to that. Obviously no squirting, <laughs> <laughs> no cursing, no cum. <laughs> right. So they're sitting in those yeah. Yeah. There are things in here like, yes. I mean, yeah, as no, a standards and practices person, yeah. you knew very well right. what was going to fly and what was. Yeah. There. I knew totally. There was no, there were no surprises. And in fact, if there were any surprises, it was that they let me do certain things that I didn't think they would let me do. So, yeah. Um, and, you know, I also sold a, a pilot at one point with a dying character. And so I had mm -hmm. to answer these questions. So I'm wondering how you answer the questions of, you know, all right, this is a series. How long is Hyacinth going to live? And how yes. were you, how do you answer those questions when they inevitably came up? <laughs> so my original idea was that um, the first season would be about um, this diagnosis and this treatment. And at the end of the first season, she gets the news that the cancer is, has advanced and um, is terminal. And she has to make the decision of whether uh, she wants to continue with chemo that will wreck her life um, and also extend it very briefly, or if she wants to die on her own terms. And so she makes the decision to die on her own terms. And then the second season is about her finding her big wishes like that's like 
in addition to this business that exists, like that's her journey. And then the third season, she dies at the end of the second season. And then at the third season is about grief. And she's still, Hyacinth's character is still present, but often in the memory and often the way that we like have new context on things. Like when we're looking back, the way that we see moments in a different light now that someone's gone. Um, so that was the, the story with the third season. And that was the pitch that I gave Brett Pirtle and James Griffiths on the production level, and then Jose Acevedo and Phoebe Robinson at Tiny, Opera- at Tiny Operations. Um, and then when we pitched to ABC, <laughs> we tried to just be gentle about that to say like, these were our long-term goals. Um, but in terms of like when that needed to happen, we were open. So that was my idea if it was not an ABC show, but if it was an ABC show, listen, to live forever. (laughs) (laughs) You know, remission came, you know, played a much bigger role in the ABC version. There are miracles, miracles to be had. Yeah. Cause you know, if it was streaming, people are fine with two or three seasons. Great. That's, and that was the, that's what I imagined. I imagined three seasons. So, but for a broadcast, they're looking for, they're looking for more and they're, I, I, it would be hard for me to think ABC was like, great, you can kill her. If she can die at the end of the second season, <laughs> we're okay with that. That seems like that'd be a tough sell. Yeah. And I don't even think we like broached it. I think that they, it was like gentle. Like these are the things that we have in mind. Um, but I think that they were excited by, I think they were excited by the tone. And I think they were excited by like the hopefulness as well. Um, because that is what it is. It was like hope in the face of loss. Um, but yeah, we never had any heart to hearts about how long (laughs) we would see Hyacinth. (laughs) Um, did you pitch them a bunch of other wishes that were going to be in future episodes? Yes, I definitely did. Um, but now in this moment, I have no idea (laughs) what they were. I do remember a wish for like a, a guy who, wants to be killed in a most dangerous game situation. And so she has to rec- Carla has to reconcile since her thing is like, she wants to do the right thing. Like, how do you fulfill a wish that demands that like killing someone? And I pitched that and who fucking knows what the rest of them were. I think um, I did have a lot of fun with it though. Like coming up with all of those wishes and, you know, when the news was published on the deadline, a lot of people reached out to me who had their own experiences with Big Wish or sorry, Make a Wish. And so that was generating those ideas is really exciting to me too. Like thinking about like what this world could be even after it was sold. Um, Casey St. Owned, who uh, Ben knows, um, who, were, who worked for Letterman. Um, she was in charge at Letterman of the Make a Wish wishes that Dave got. And so she told me really wonderful stories that really compared to my own, like, like people who get to double dip, who don't die, <laughs> <laughs> who just keep don't, not dying. And what do you do? Like, you have to give them another, <laughs> you know, I just think there's something, there's something so fun about this world about like imagining all of that stuff. So that was really what we relied on. But was the plan to have a wish of the week? Yes. Yeah. Wish a week and always, always hopefully a wish that would be mirrored in other stories that were happening on screen as well. Yeah. Right. Um, and tonally percentage of pathos, were you thinking 
that every episode, um, the, 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 death of one of your main characters was ever present or there were episodes that you're thinking where we play this light and it's just sort of in the background and we're not having the very, you know, the the special moment at the end. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, absolutely. And like we would sometimes see someone die, sometimes not see them die. Um, And, you know, obviously like I, I like playing with silliness with like heart but some, uh, we would always have heart, but I think sometimes we would get that from Hyacinth's character and like their, and Carla and Hyacinth's friendship and that balance. So I think really like leaning on the absurdity of death more than anything, more than the, the hard, (laughs) the hard truths of loss. Right. Were there other shows or movies that tonally were inspiring to you that it was a tone you were trying to hit? Sure. Well, I think other people, Chris's movie is a great one. Um, yeah, like, I think that's a really great movie about death. I really wanted to hit like also big fish, like, like in that, like, I know that's a weird one too, but like maybe not TV shows necessarily, but certainly movies that were, were things that I really felt it, it was just about like finding the light and finding comedy in those really desperate and hard moments. Yeah. Yeah. Other people is such a great example. I mean, I remember seeing that movie either right before or soon after my mother died and just feeling like, Oh, this yeah. is really hitting this thing where you, oh can, my God. you can, it's yeah. hard to keep in your mind, this person's dying and I should be patient and be, you know, but they can still just, <laughs> yeah. be just as frustrating. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's weird how that experience can sometimes like, feel it make you feel relief like like how a death can be a relief as well like holy shit um but i love that i mean i haven't seen it in a really long time because it is a hard one to watch um if you've lost anyone (laughs) but i remember loving it at the time crying my eyes out sitting behind lauren michaels and and trying not to make a you know an ugly face of myself but um yeah, I love that it plays again with like the comedy of life and also the selfishness that we all have. Like, I, I you don't become a better person just because you're losing someone right. so, <laughs> necessarily. So, I mean, we look back and the person that you're losing doesn't become a better person. And so we change the way that we look back on things. But I think it's funny to deal with them in that very moment of, of what the real truth of it is. Yeah. And it does seem like it's such a huge part of life. And a lot of, you know, I've tried to get it, deal with it in a show and people have, um, and often networks come right up to the edge and then pass on these things. But what you had here (laughs) was such a sort of big concept, right? This, this make a wish for adults, um, seems like, okay, that's a hook where that doesn't feel depressing. Like, yeah, there's something fun. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Um, a sort of high concept element to it that will always, you know, um, and I can provide pathos, but could also just provide, you know, huge broad comedy. Yeah. Yeah. Why'd you land on a mattress store? I'm just curious. Workplaces are always tough and (laughs) you end up spending a lot of time. What was, where where did that come from? Mattress store is Craig's beds in New York city. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> there's a real bed store, um, that that came from. And I think we had to visit, we just needed a new mattress at the time that I was writing it. And I thought, Oh, this is a fun place to live in. Um, 
to me, it's very important to find a very specific job that is normal that people have, (laughs) (laughs) you know, like that isn't a newspaper or a magazine or whatever. Like, I don't know, like, so that can be hard. Um, but I have been to the store Craig's beds, which is in the garment district in Manhattan (laughs) a couple of times. And it is this guy, Craig, it's his family business. I think he's a photographer. He has other interests in his life, but he happens to sell beds for a living. And if you need a mattress in Manhattan, you can go and you get an appointment and you, uh, you have an hour alone with a room of beds and you can roll from bed to bed. (laughs) It is a real place. And Craig is the person who runs it. And like, because he has like an artist background, he has met a lot of interesting people. And so he has a conversation with you (laughs) while you're lying on your back (laughs) in this bed. And you know, with me, like, I think like he talked to SNL, like he wanted to hear all about that experience. And I think he gets interesting stories from everyone that he comes in or everybody that he meets. Oh, you're frozen. Oh, I'm back. Okay. How long? No, no, I'm I can hear you. We were, we were good. Okay, good. <laughs> um, yeah. So that's what, and I also, I'm from Jersey City and I wanted to, or I, I'm not from Jersey City, but I lived in Jersey City for 10 years. Um, and I wanted to sort of celebrate that place. And I thought of the world of like, of that, of that store existing at the Newport mall. <laughs> it's yeah. I mean, it's so hard. I, I struggle with jobs yeah. all the time and workplaces and everything feels like, Oh, you know, you've, you've seen it or, you know, or if you haven't, it's, is it going to provide enough story and are we going to get tired <laughs> of being there? And, you know, it did feel just fresh and. Oh know. God. I'm so glad. <laughs> it was a conversation that I had with my manager. I remember like it was a mattress store from the beginning. It wasn't always a mattress store. And like her problem with it uh, was why is he there? Like, why would this person be working there? But to me, I feel like, and I, I think we explained it. We got there. Maybe it wasn't clear initially. Um, I feel like we all have a responsibility to our families. Like I think some, so many of us end up working jobs because of that, that aren't in line with what our dreams necessarily were. Um, so yeah. So it always made sense to me that he would be there. I don't yeah. know. <laughs> um, and so you, so it was a spec, right? So you didn't have yeah. to go through that. Uh, you know, a full development process with them, or right. I mean, did you like? Did were there a lot of notes from the network after they bought it? Like, was it a major rewrite? It was. I think it was a, a pretty big rewrite. So it was already a spec, and yeah. So and they liked the spec. That what was nice is that made the pitch so easy. Like the pitch was just ten minutes on Zoom. It was really like just like kind of backstory and just a hint of things and not having to dig deep into to explaining anything. Um, but there were like, I think there were pretty substantial rewrites, um, both in terms of like making things clear, making, I think there was like a phase where everyone kind of basically says their deal in a very bald way. (laughs) (laughs) That's me. Um, but then I think the, the first time, I think I rewrote too hard. So I think I took too many notes. I took all of the notes and that took away some of the charm from the first draft, I think. So my second draft for the network was 
a marriage between that draft and the previous one. So I, I, I unwrote <laughs> was my second draft. Um, and that's how we got there. Yeah. Um, when you sell a spec, you know, it, often odds are greater that if they're buying it, they're actually going to make it. <laughs> um, so you must, so well, I'm just imagining that. And I know obviously it didn't happen. I'm not, I'm just <laughs> saying, and it was, but it seems like in a way it's kind of the disappointment maybe is because you have a higher expectation, right? You sell a pitch yeah. and you write it and you know, the odds are against you and you're not, but it's just like, Oh, they bought the, you know, the they script. like the script. Yeah. Um, and I guess you were in very unusual circumstances selling yes. this right into the my thick of the pandemic. I think they only made three sitcoms. Like I, they only made three pilots. I, it was bad. Like right, it was, where they would normally make 10 or 12. Yeah. I mean, it's the numbers have been going steadily down over the years, but in the, yeah. used to be, you, they make 12 comedies yeah. and now they're making three. That's pretty tough. And all three are famous people. So like they made home economics, they made um, the Kelsey Grammer, Alec Baldwin show. They made uh, the wonder years. Those were the three. And like, that to me was fine. I was like, okay, of course, <laughs> you know, nobody on my level beat me only very famous people, <laughs> right? <laughs> very yeah. successful people. Yeah. Um, Cause you didn't have actors no. ever at any point. I know you had Phoebe Robinson attached, but as a producer, yeah. she was um, a producer. Was, it was never thought that she was going to play one of the parts. I really, I mean, I would have loved for her to be Hyacinth, but I think she was way too busy with her own thing to sign on for that. Um, we definitely had people in mind. Like we were thinking of Kiki Palmer, like we had people in mind, but we never had anyone attached. Um, and yeah, like, God, of course it was disappointing. I feel lucky to have just gone there. <laughs> it was like, I got the no, there was a lot of hope there. And I know people really did like it. Um, and I, you know, you also don't know like how much is your agent and like saying like, oh, it almost made it <laughs> and, and how, like what's real, what isn't. Um, but I do think it was close. Um, it went because it was done. I didn't have to wait until they did like a round of, 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 of pilots early. And so I got the no the week of thanks, the week before Thanksgiving, um, which was a bummer. I was obviously like. I was obviously disappointed. There was obviously the hope that it would be something and I'm still proud of it. I think it's good. Yeah. And, you know, I, you know, it came to us because, you know, James Griffiths and, and Brett Pirtle, who, who I know well, were just like, this is our favorite thing that we've Aww. ever done that didn't go. And like, would you, would you do so it? So that's, you know, it's not like, how oh, it just was another failed pilot that they immediately forget about. Like they're, you know, they were holding on to it as well. I still have hope that it'll become something else. And it's also like, it's a world that I enjoy writing about so much and relate to so deeply that I hope it can evolve, but we'll see what that is. And since this, have you, or, you know, you've obviously got a, a big job and yeah. are very busy with that. Or have you been writing other yeah, I'm developing a new show um, with James, with Rep Hurdle that I'm really, really excited about. And also with actors this time, because you got to have great actors. So Megan Rath and uh, her husband, Jack Cutmore Scott, were really, really incredible 
actors and another comedy. So I'm excited about that, of course. Good Megan, who was a, a hyacinth in this. Was she so was, great. wasn't she so good? So good. Oh, yeah. yeah, she's incredible. The whole cast was so fucking good. Um, but I'm delighted to be working with her and Jack on this so much. So we'll see. <laughs> well, we will keep fingers crossed. We don't want Thank that. You. We don't want to do a read of that one here. <laughs> Look, uh, just this we one. have to. <laughs> I, I I don't know. I think you celebrate whatever you get to, you know, that's okay. I agree. I like, you know, uh, I mean, doing this a long time and I've been doing this podcast for a long time and there's nothing you yeah. can control except the work, no. right? You just yeah. you, you do work that you're proud of. And then it's random. It's, it's just, random. yeah. <laughs> and, know, a pandemic could hit anything could happen. It's that it's, these things are out of your control. What's not out of your control is, is the work. Yeah, and, completely. Uh, um, and as long as you're enjoying the work, like, I mean, my God, I think like finding the relationships, finding Phoebe, finding, I mean, Jose had, I had known he was an early champion of dead dad's club. So like, and that's it's Phoebe amazing. Robinson's development. Yeah. That's partner. her head of development. Yeah. Um, so I think like these relationships grow and evolve and change and it's a, that's the win, you know, whatever phase you get to with certain people or, or however you like cross paths. I think that's the real win. Uh, yeah. I also want to give a shout out to Tom Keenan because he, I think, was our biggest defender at ABC. He was amazing there. Yeah. Um, and <laughs> shout looking, out. All right. Tom, <laughs> he's one of the good ones. Um, and, you know, just another, you know, it's another, you'd written sketch and, and, yeah. you know, and, and now a half hour, it's just, you know, your writing is evolving and you're, you know, these, yes. these skills that you're building, it's, it's kind of great to be able to succeed in all these different forms. And honestly, anytime I'm not writing about Steve Bannon, it's a win. So I feel like <laughs> it's fine. Yes. It's nice. There's no political jokes in here at all. I don't think there, I don't remember. No, God, no. Gotta be a nice break for you. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I, I journey very hard in the other direction every time. So I'm sure. Um, <laughs> plus those aren't good to put in because they date very quickly. Uh, yeah. In the half hour. <laughs> Save yep. those for Samantha B. <laughs> um, well, this was, it was such a pleasure. I love the script. Thank I love the cast we put together. I love getting to meet you. Thank you for doing this. Thank you so much. Thank you for like letting this happen. I'm so, it was just incredible to see. That's why we love doing this. All right. Thanks, Kristen. (laughs) Thank you so much. I hope you enjoyed that. Dead Pilot Society is produced by me and my co-host Ben Blacker and our associate producer Noah Findling and edited by Jordan Katz. If you like this show, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. Really helps people find us. Also, what helps people find us is telling friends about us. Uh, you can follow us on social media to find out all the latest. We're on Twitter at Dead Pilots Pod and on Instagram at Dead Pilot Society. Until next time, I am Andrew Reich. Happy holidays. Thanks for listening. Maximumfun.org. Comedy and culture. Artist owned, audience supported.